Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 205, Ghost Starliner. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. NASA and Boeing are about to launch the second uncrewed test flight called Orbital Flight Test 2, or OFT2, of the Boeing Starliner, a spacecraft that will soon be transporting astronauts to and from the International Space Station. Having multiple spacecraft that have this capability is a critical objective laid out under NASA's commercial crew program, and this uncrewed test flight will demonstrate the Starliner as another capable vehicle of doing so alongside the SpaceX Dragon. So to walk us through this test flight and its objectives is Dr. Robert Dempsey, more commonly known here as Dr. Bob. He is one of the flight directors that will sit in the Boeing flight control room. He's also the lead Boeing flight director, and he'll be sitting there for the rendezvous and docking portion of this mission. As an experienced flight director and author and executive editor of the International Space Station Operating an Outpost in the New Frontier, which goes crazy in-depth on space station operations and systems, he paints a verbal picture of what we can expect to see on this mission and why these objectives are critical to get us to the next step, a flight test with a crew of three NASA astronauts on board the Boeing Starliner. So here's more on the Starliner and the operations we can expect to see very soon on OFT2. Let's get right into it. Enjoy. Dr. Bob, thanks for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. It is my pleasure to be here. So, OFT2 is very close. How are you feeling about this upcoming mission? It's a... It's always an interesting time when you're uh, about six weeks out from launch yeah. um, because you've got a lot of energy uh, getting ready. Uh, there's always a lot of last minute things, but uh, the team and everything is really coming together. So we're excited because we think we're uh, all set and going to be ready to launch uh, the end of next month. You have a lot of experience getting you to prepare for this moment. You're the lead flight director for Boeing. Tell me about some of your experience that helped you to get you where you are today, starting with NASA. Well, I'm a little bit different than your average flight director um, because I'm actually an astronomer. Cool. And uh, I actually worked up at the, the Hubble Space Telescope Institute for a number of years before I came down here. And I think that gave me a very kind of a, a unique perspective on approaching problems. I'm a very data-oriented person. I'm not mm. as engineering-focused as some people. Um, but I came down here in uh, 1997, and I was working in what was called the ODIN group, or the Command and Data Handling Group for the International Space Station. And I did that for a number of years, and then I transferred over to the communications group before I was selected as a flight director. Mm. And then as a flight director, I worked on a number of projects, uh, especially with the European Space Agency and the Russians. So I have a lot of experience in working kind of integrated projects. And I mentioned the, the European Space Agency in particular because when NASA was partnering with them in the beginning, you know, they have a different approach than we traditionally did. And with the Boeing project, I've had to bring some of the same sort of things where we look at the way we've traditionally done things and and considered alternate ways to do things. Hmm. Okay. And you, you had some experience doing things a little bit more traditionally because you were a flight director 
for the International Space Station program. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And I did a number of uh, shuttle missions as lead shuttle. and as a supporting flight director. I've led some spacewalks. I've done some uh, Soyuz mission docking and undocking. So all the various missions that we have done over the years. Very cool. All right. So I want to get into how that experience helped you to Work, start working with Boeing and building this these procedures, working with the spacecraft from the ground up, right? But first, I want to understand more about the spacecraft. What is the Boeing Starliner? Okay, it's a, a capsule-type spacecraft. And I know sometimes people go, oh, we had the beautiful shuttle. Why are we going back to 1960s technology? And the thing is, unless you're trying to land like a plane with a big payload in your in your back, a capsule is the most efficient thing, and that's why uh, all the companies now doing cargo and crew vehicles are focusing on capsules. But it's a capsule uh, with a small crew module that can hold uh, up to five astronauts, and then there's a service module that provides uh, propulsion and uh, various type of control functions. The Boeing project, um, you know, is a little bit different than some other companies in that uh, they build the spacecraft, uh, they partner with United Launch Alliance to launch the spacecraft, and then they partnered with us, NASA, to fly and operate the spacecraft. Hmm. So they will build it, United Launch Alliance will stack it and launch it, we will fly it to the space station, it'll dock uh, with the crew, they will transfer over, and then when their mission is done, they would come back nominally. We would fly it down to the Earth. Actually, the crew flies it. It's an autonomous vehicle. The ground's there for contingency. Mm -hmm. And then Boeing would recover it and start the process all over again. Got it. Okay. How does the Starliner differ, let's say, from shuttle, right? That's the traditional, that's the U.S. vehicle that we've worked with in the past in terms of how the operations worked, in terms of the functionality. What is this new generation spacecraft? How is it different from, from legacy spacecraft? Yeah, there's a couple key differences. Since the vehicle was required to really only have a few simple functions, go to the space station, you know, deliver a crew to the space station, serve as an emergency lifeboat on the space station if the crew has to evacuate for some reason, then bring them home, um, it doesn't need to have some of the functionality that the space shuttle had. For example, it doesn't need to carry a large cargo bay. Um, it doesn't need to be on orbit if you recall, some of the shuttle missions were, you know, up to two weeks to do science or to deliver uh, stuff to the International Space Station. So uh, it really has a shorter time to be on orbit. Um, so it can only launch and uh, kind of take uh, up to a couple days to get to the space station. Nominally, it would be there in 24 hours or less, but if there was problems, it could it could take a couple days. And then when it comes home, it's rel relatively straightforward. So it doesn't have quite the same capabilities. And then the last thing that I would mention as a key difference is NASA required the vehicle to be autonomous. Hmm. And what that means is technically uh, the crew could get in, you launch it, and it does its entire mission without anyone touching a button or pushing uh, a command down in mission control. Uh, the reality is, you know, you still have some interaction on it, but uh, that's the design preference. Okay, I see. Now, we had a little bit of experience with flying this spacecraft. This, What we're talking about today is orbital flight test number two. There was an orbital flight test number one. Now, tell me about what happened for that one. 
Yes, that occurred in December of 2019, and it was supposed to be the, uh, you know, the uncrewed checkout mission, getting ready for the crewed flight test, or CFT, later on. Unfortunately, there was a software problem that occurred very early in the mission, and basically what that problem was is, so I think everyone is familiar with the famous countdown of 5, 4, 3, 2. When we get to zero, we actually start counting up. And this is the mission elapsed time. And that's a clock that is just monitoring the whole mission. But the autonomous software for OFT1 was designed that at about eight and a half minutes to perform a critical burn. If this burn did not occur, basically the vehicle would be on a parabolic journey and it would go up and then come right back down, which mm -hmm. is not what you want to do. The orbit insertion burn basically puts it in orbit. Because of a software glitch, uh, this clock actually started counting about a day before the actual launch. Oh. So at about eight and a half minutes into the mission, when we were expecting the burn, the software said, well, it's about a day and a half now. I'm not planning to do any burns. So the ground control team pretty quickly realized that the burn was not executing. And we began to uplink manual commands that we had actually practiced as a contingency to perform that burn. Unfortunately, by the time the burn executed, the vehicle had come down enough that for it to complete that burn and stay on orbit safely, it had used too much fuel, too much propellant, to actually go to the International Space Station, which was one of the objectives. Mm -hmm. So after that, uh, we did some checkouts, made sure the vehicle was still safe, and then we came home about 48 hours after launch, which was early. Okay. Now, that was the first test, and of course one of the objectives was to get to the International Space Station, but there might have been some lessons that we learned from that first flight and that we can apply and say though that validated these parts of the spacecraft or the you know as part of the uncrewed flight test we still have a, some more we want to learn on OFT2 but what did we learn from OFT1 you're absolutely correct i mean obviously the most basic lesson we learned was to look at that autonomous software and make sure there was no ties to a clock or something else that could go wrong um, we also scrubbed through the software and said, hey, uh, if communications with the ground is required and you have a communications problem, you don't want to have that linkage because then the operation will execute. So we learned some things like that to make it better. There was actually a lot of software review to make sure that we could uh, be a little more robust and strong. Um, we also learned that the vehicle was pretty robust. Um, the propulsion system got quite a workout by that off-nominal burn that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And at first, we were a little bit worried about it. But in hindsight, after we examined the data, it did, it did pretty well, which gives us a lot of confidence that it'll, it'll do well for the crewed missions. Um, and there were some radio links, like with the International Space Station, for example. One of the things you'll be hearing about is... The, the space to space link. And that is a key link between the two vehicles. Uh, its primary function is that if the ISS crew saw something happening that did not look safe during the rendezvous, they can execute a command uh, and say, go away, Starliner. Um, 
on the OFT-1 mission, we were able to establish that link hundreds of kilometers apart, much farther away than we thought. So that wow. gives us confidence that, for example, that radio link may work much better than we had kind of anticipated based on the design. Very good. Okay. Now there's some stuff we obviously want to learn on OFT-2. So let's get into the mission. Uh, Dr. Bob, walk us through the OFT-2 mission, starting with Countdown. Okay. Uh the vehicle will roll out uh, a little bit before the launch uh, to the pad. It's not like the space shuttle where people might remember that it might go out uh, weeks, in fact, and then sit on the pad. Uh, this will be uh, integrated in what's called the Vertical Integration Facility by United Launch Alliance and then rolled out about a day or two, depending on the timing, before the launch. Um, it may actually be a little bit earlier than that in this case because they, they have some spare time. Um, the vehicle is activated and actually powered up by the Boeing team in Florida. And then a little before launch, our team will come into mission control here in Houston and monitor that, that power up in the systems and get ready. And then, you know, several hours before launch, we actually become an active partner in the countdown. Hmm. And then a few hours before launch, we kind of take over and we're, we're primed. Um, and then the vehicle will launch. Uh, it's about, uh, you know, about 11, 12 minute uh, two-stage operation to get into orbit. Uh, we will then perform that orbit insertion burn. And very quickly, we get into a, a very busy timeline. Hmm. Uh, the spacecraft will do what we call demonstrations objectives. And what that is, is for example, um, before we get close to the space station, uh, we want to make sure that if the vehicle or the ground or the ISS crew detects something is wrong, that an abort can be issued and the vehicle will back away and get safely away from the space station. Now, you don't want to test that when you're already 50 meters away from the space station. So the first thing we do on orbit is test that. We pretend to point to the space station, we issue an abort, make sure it does all the appropriate burns. So we get immediately into uh, uh, demonstrating the capabilities of the hardware and software. Um, the VESTA, um, and I can't remember off the top of my head what that acronym stands for. It's a, <laughs> it's a multiply embedded one, I think. Uh, it's a visual-based system that the Starliner has. It has a laser, it has uh, visual cameras and an infrared camera on it, um, and two of each of those. And uh, we'll also start checking that out very quickly to make sure that uh, it's it's working properly in orbit and getting ready for the uh, the rendezvous phase and one other thing that's new on OFT2 that wasn't available on OFT1 and was actually designed for the the, the crewed missions is an entry cover hmm. uh, this is a cover that protects the NASA docking system or the NDS system that's going to be used to mate the two vehicles and just to make sure it doesn't get damaged from heat uh, from either the launch or the entry, there's this little cover. So the other thing we'll also be doing is opening this cover right away so that uh, the NDS and the VESTA system is all ready to begin to operate. And we'll also check out that docking system. Cool. Now, the docking will be, uh, depending on which launch attempt, about 24 to 26 hours after we launch. Uh, so about six hours before that docking time, we begin what we call proximity operations. 
And this is when we really start using that VESTA data to look at the space station and say, uh, where are you, space station? And of course, the, the Starliner itself has basically GPS units, kind of like our phones do, and say, well, I know where I am, and now I know where you are, and the software on board will calculate how to get from point A to B so that it docks to that space station. So we then begin that whole process of a rendezvous profile that takes several hours, and we are still testing those VESTA sensors. Um, we are making sure, because they have different modes that they work in, like for example, one of the modes is where it can uh, see the outline of the space station. And another mode is where it can look at individual features and say, I see that handrail. And it uses those different ways to navigate and we'll be checking those out as we get closer and closer. At about 200 meters, um, we will execute uh, what we call the hold and retreat demo. And again, it's to verify that the ISS crew can hit the hold button and stop the vehicle. And uh, the vehicle can also retreat if anyone says we need to get away. And after we verify that that's working, we will then come in to about 10 meters. At 10 meters, uh, we activate the docking system, check everything out for one last time, and then we come in to dock. Now, we're not going to immediately enter the vehicle after we dock um, because we will be docking late in the space station's crew day. Um, so we'll just get hard-mated, make sure everything's good, and then uh, the next day my team will come in again uh, a little bit less than a day after docking, and we will open up the hatches and ingress, and uh, we'll transfer some cargo, uh, do some basic checkouts with the spacecraft, and then... Very quickly, we're going to be coming home. Um, if we launch on July 30th or the 31st, our planned undocking is like August 5th. Wow. Um, so we'll just be there a few days. Uh, we have to recharge the batteries that we've used to get there. Um, and we'll begin like uh, powering up the vehicle and closing the hatch about 48 hours before we undock. And then when we undock, we will... Uh, um, come down and it's fairly quick about four hours uh, to separate and uh, re-enter and then we will be landing at one of two landing sites out in the uh, southwest of uh, the United States and some of those things obviously like the launch and the, the entry and landing uh, went very well on uh, OFT1. Cool and this is the, this vehicle lands on land so that's it has the capability to do that how does that work? That's correct. It's, it's regular planned way of coming down is to land on land, uh, and it has these airbags that um, it's using parachutes, obviously, to slow itself down. Mm -hmm. But when it gets close to the earth, it will eject. There's a heat shield, of course, also to keep it uh, intact as it comes through the Earth's atmosphere with the uh, high temperatures. And then these airbags will inflate, and it'll just basically settle down on a, a desert out there. Now, if there is a problem, we can land in the water. Hmm. Um, but that's not really desired because, I mean, technically you can land anywhere in the world in the water. There's a lot of it, uh, but you'd rather have it right where uh, you've got your landing team sitting there so that they can uh, go over and, and make sure everything is okay and then begin the process of preparing it for the next mission. Sweet. So all of these different, when you went through the profile, you mentioned a couple demonstrations, a lot of checkouts of this VESTA, this visual visual navigation uh, um, hardware. 
Um, you talked about some of the space-to-space commanding, the ability of the crew being able to hold retreats, that sort of thing. Are these the primary objectives that we're trying to uh, get across to verify Starliner, you are ready to carry crew. You are absolutely correct. Cool. Um, because, you know, obviously we've got to verify that we can rendezvous and dock to that International Space Station. Very because otherwise we're not going to get crews to and from there. <laughs> Very cool. Okay, so how did you practice for all of this, right? So we've been, uh, I've been taking part in some of the simulations, but what are the teams doing to get together and say, um, let's practice this. Let's make sure that we, the teams, the flight control teams, are ready uh, for this mission. That's a very good question, and it starts with the, the most important part of our training actually starts with uh, laying awake at night in bed wondering what <laughs> do we have to do and how to make this work. Um, and then once we kind of figure out it, we, we develop procedures and what we call CONOPS, which are concepts of operations, like how we're going to do that. And then we go into a simulation, as you mentioned, where there is a basically a computer that is mimicking the spacecraft. And it sends telemetry or data to the flight controllers and mission control. And for all practical purposes, we can't tell whether it's a real spacecraft or a simulation. Hmm. And what they will do is they will fail, for example, a computer or one part of the electrical system or one part of the life support system or a thruster. And the team, we will then look at it and go, okay, well, how does that affect the rest of the mission? Are we still go to continue to rendezvous and dock? Or do we have an emergency where if the crew is here, we would have to get on the ground right away? And we just practice that over and over. And those con ops that I mentioned earlier, we stress them out. Uh, did they work? in the sim as well as we thought they were beforehand. And so we revise them and we go, okay, here's something we learned in that simulation. Um, and one of the biggest things we've learned is autonomous software is a lot different than a crew. Hmm. And it, it changes how you think about problems. And then we go into the next sim and we, we do that again and see how well it works. And we just do that over and over until we're ready to fly. Very cool. So. Um some of these con ops, some of these contingency operations. What you, you mentioned um, the thrusters, for example. You said they performed um, the OFT1 whenever we had to execute that manual burn when it did not execute an orbital insertion burn. They performed better than expected. So take us through some of the contingency operations. If something were to happen, like in these simulations that you're saying, what are the capabilities of Starliner to keep the crew and the vehicle and the International Space Station, all of these uh, different components, keep everyone safe? What are the capabilities of Starliner? Well, a lot of the systems are designed to be redundant. Hmm. Um, and it may even may have more than one level of redundancy. So, for example, if a thruster were to just fail, um, we've got plenty of other thrusters that we would uh, basically take over that operation and continue. Um, where it becomes a little more tricky is, let's say you have a thruster fail, and then you have a computer or a computer processor that controls some of the thrusters also have a problem. Hmm. That's where the flight control team has to look at those two failures together and go, okay, do we still have the capabilities that we need uh, to either get to the space station or get the crew home? Got it. Okay. Now, this is all for getting prepared for crew. So um, 
we're going to execute this mission. We're going to do an uncrewed mission to the International Space Station. Not going to stay there very long. Going to come back. Really, what we're gearing up for is the crewed test flight. So what's that one? The crewed flight test, or CFT, uh, will be the next mission after this one, okay. assuming everything goes smoothly, mm-hmm. um, but I, I think that's likely. Um, and that's where we have um, some astronauts that will be on board. And, you know, these are, it's still a test mission, so there will be objectives on it. For example, the astronauts will take control of the vehicle and, and fly it manually just to make sure that if they had to in event an emergency, they could do it. So it's still a test flight, but it's the second step that if it goes well, um, basically at that point, we've proven all the capabilities of the spacecraft, that it should be able to meet the requirements and, uh, you know, take the astronaut safely to and from the space station. At that point, um, then we can start what we call our regular uh, increment mission support. Mm. And that's, you know, where, you know, we're routinely taking astronauts up for six month stays. Got it. So in terms of the operations, we mentioned mission control, Houston, you said, uh, especially even on the, on the launch countdown, Houston's taken over pretty early. Um, but when you say Houston, there is um, the Mission Control Center that has multiple mission control rooms, and there's Starliner operations, and then of course there's International Space Station operations. So how are the teams working together to execute these missions? That's a really good question. Um, in in many ways, it's you know the same sort of things that we're doing because hmm. the it's it's all flight operations division FOD as we are called um, we're using the same systems that the space station team are using the same computer consoles um, the same infrastructure um, and we've trained together um, so we have a lot of commonality there so um, we are literally in a control room down the hall from the International Space Station team um, so we are coordinating directly with them. They are in charge of the space station, of course, and the ultimate for safety for the entire operation. Um, so we will, uh, in many ways, launch and fly like we did the space shuttle. Hmm. Um, but uh, it's a little different in that we're operating a private company's vehicle. Now, what's, what's really cool is that this is, um, this is gearing up for a very interesting time in human spaceflight. We have the SpaceX Dragon flying crews. We're going to have the Boeing Starliner flying crews. That's what this mission is about, is getting that ready to do so, regular crew tra- transportation. We're already starting to train for Artemis missions. We're going to have private astronaut missions. What excites you about this, this time coming up? There's just a lot of activity. Mission Control Houston is going to be very busy with a lot of different things going on. What excites you? It is very exciting. Um, and it's funny, you know, sometimes people will, like, see us as in competition with, with SpaceX. Um, oh. They're another provider. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't see it as competition. Um, we're all trying to do the same thing of ultimately explore space and do science in, in, in orbit. Um, but uh, we see the exciting times that are going on. For example, uh, we've had challenges right now because mission control is getting busy. Yeah. Um, there's been times we wanted to do a simulation and the Artemis team uh, needed to do a simulation the same day. So we have to you know, juggle uh, the schedule a little bit. So there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was mainly focused as a flight director on the space station, 
we were worried that, uh, you know, when the assembly was complete and the astronauts are up there just doing science, that things would get kind of boring. And it's far from that. Um, you know, we've got cargo vehicles coming and going from the space station all the time. Just this week, we were trying to install a new solar array. Uh, so we're always still pushing the envelope, so to speak, and challenging it. So there's a lot going on. And then when you factor in all the uh, the, the moon program stuff, the human lander systems uh, that are, you know, moving very quickly to try and land uh, humans on the moon again in a few years. Um, and And my colleagues, you know, that's what's really neat about this time. And I think very unique. I can walk down the hallway and talk to someone uh, who's working on the Artemis missions. And they're asking us, okay, how did you deal with this particular problem in terms of a rocket or autonomous vehicle operations? Because that's what we've been doing for the last few years. Mm -hmm. um, and then the human lander system guys will come talk to us and say, hey, look, we're, we're getting into autonomous vehicles. Tell us what you've learned. Uh, and we, we, we learned some stuff from them. So it's like, you know, all these different projects are going on, and it's just an amazing time. Wow. So what's next for you? You're, the, you're working with the Boeing teams. You're going to be taking part as a flight director in the OFT2 mission. What are you looking forward to doing? Um, well, right now my plan is uh, to continue on with the crewed flight tests. Oh, okay. Um, and then uh, I have been doing a little work recently in the human lander systems cool. and uh, would love to kind of maybe uh, take a little break from the, the, the crewed vehicles and kind of look at that stuff for a while. There you go. So, yeah, building up a new era of transportation to low Earth orbit. Now you're going to be focusing on the moon. That's pretty special. I bet I'm thinking of a lot of a lot of people from early Apollo days that, you know, we, we all look up to, you know, the Gene Krantz and uh, and folks like that. All of these Apollo directors, they were they were instrumental in getting humans to the moon. Now you are being a part of that. You're building up an infrastructure in low Earth orbit, and now you're you're helping out with this new era of returning to the moon. That's got to feel pretty good. It does, and I I, I don't mean to sound trite in this, but it, you know it is part of my dream. You know, I literally, when I was six years old watching the moon landings, I said I want to go do that. <laughs> and uh, my, my my family will attest to you that I started saying that at six and I never changed and wavered. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I did study astronomy. Um, so, you know, I love that part of science. And to me, going back to the moon uh, is a great way to kind of follow. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but my flight director call sign is Galileo. Hmm. And, uh, you know, that is definitely in my core. So going back and exploring the moon would be the ultimate part of the dream. Very cool. Well, Dr. Bob, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast and telling us all about the Boeing Starliner, this upcoming mission. And there's a lot to look forward to uh, just within the next couple of years. So appreciate your time. My pleasure. And I'd be happy to come back after the mission and uh, talk further about it. Let's do it. Thank you. Hey, thanks for sticking around. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Bob today, and I learned a lot about the OFT2 mission. I hope you did too. 
Check NASA.gov for the latest on the launch of OFT2, where you can watch uh, all the activities that are going to be happening in Florida very soon, launching uh, this uncrewed test flight. We are one of many NASA podcasts across the entire agency. You can check them all out at nasa.gov slash podcast. That's where we are, and you can click on us and follow us on various uh, different platforms. We're also on the Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you'd like to ask us a question or submit an idea, use the hashtag NASA on uh, hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform, and just make sure to mention it's for Houston We Have a Podcast. This episode was recorded on June 18th, 2021. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norm Moran, Belinda Polito, Jennifer Hernandez, and the Boeing teams for their coordination. And of course, thanks again to Dr. Bob Dempsey for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on, and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.